turn this evening to the 50th Psalm, Psalm 50. I had a slight panic attack during the pre-service prayer meeting. Derek mentioned uh, something of the Psalms of Asaph that you've been looking at. And I thought, hmm, I thought he did a series on Zechariah while I was gone. Um, the reason my panic attack was there is because it's my thought in these summer Sabbath evenings to look at the Psalms of Asaph, and a little more on that in a moment, but he reassured me when he said, you've been singing through that section of the Psalter in Sunday school, so I feel just a little bit better. I told him it reminded me of a story Dr. Cairns told a lot of years ago when he was preaching in Toronto and standing at the door and the back behind the pulpit before they went out to the platform for the service, Dr. McClellan turned to Dr. Cairns and said, what are you preaching on today? And I don't remember the topic, let's just say Noah's Ark. And he said, I just preached on that last Sunday. Dr. Cairns said, oh, well, go on out and start the service. I'll be out in a little while. So he stayed in the back during the uh, song service and sketched out some notes and well, for Frank McClellan's report, came out and preached mightily for over an hour. Um, well, anyway, we don't expect uh, over an hour uh, this evening, and uh, well, thankfully, I'm not repeating sermons that Derek has preached. But I did have many thoughts uh, in recent days, just certain phrases of the Psalms, as I'm sure is your experience, that come to mind, and uh, recognize that many of those flowed from the pen of Asaph, or we'll see perhaps along the way some in Asaph's choir, and he penned a dozen of the psalms. Most of them, all of them but this psalm, are found in the little section from Psalm 73 to Psalm 83. But Psalm 50 is the first that bears his name in the Psalter, and it's this psalm that I want us to look to this evening. So let us read together Psalm 50, a psalm of Asaph. The mighty God, even the Lord, hath spoken, and called the earth from the rising of the sun unto the going down thereof. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, hath God shined. Our God shall come, and shall not keep silence. A fire shall devour before Him, and it shall be very tempestuous round about Him. He shall call to the heavens from above and to the earth, that He may judge His people. Gather my saints together unto me, those that have made a covenant with me by sacrifice, and the heavens shall declare his righteousness, for God is judge himself. Selah. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, and I will testify against thee. I am God, even thy God. I will not reprove thee for thy sacrifices or thy burnt offerings to have been continually before me. I will take no bullock out of thy house, nor he goats out of thy folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle upon a thousand hills. I know all the fowls of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell thee, for the world is mine and the fullness thereof. Will I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer unto God thanksgiving and pay thy vows unto the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver thee and thou shalt glorify me. But unto the wicked 
God saith, What hast thou to do to declare my statutes, or that thou shouldst take my covenant in thy mouth? Seeing thou hatest instruction, and castest my words behind thee, when thou sawest a thief, then thou consentest with him, and hast been partaker with adulterers. Thou givest thy mouth to evil, and thy tongue frameth deceit. Thou sittest and speakest against thy brother. Thou slanderest thine own mother's son. These things hast thou done, and I kept silence. Though thou thoughtest I was altogether such an one as thyself, but I will reprove thee, and set them in order before thine eyes. Now consider this, ye that forget God, lest I tear you in pieces, and there be none to deliver. Whoso offereth praise glorifieth me, and to him that ordereth his conversation aright will I show the salvation of God. Amen. We'll end our reading, and again trusting the Lord to bless the public reading of His Word. Let's bow our heads and our hearts together. Our Heavenly Father, we tonight are privileged again to be in a place where prayers want to be made, to be gathered in with those of like precious faith, and to have the encouragement and help of Thy Word again to close this Sabbath day with food yet still for our souls. We have already today looked at the ongoing struggle with Your people and ourselves among them, of unbelief being mingled in with our faith. And we would confess again together, Lord, I believe. Help Thou mine unbelief. We sing with Newton what we sang this morning, Be gone, unbelief. And so strengthen and encourage our faith in this Lord's day. And even this night as we touch upon a solemn theme, and may our faith in it stir us. Lord, Peter challenges us with thoughts of this theme of judgment, that seeing these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought we to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Use your word to that end for us tonight, we ask, and we pray it in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. Well, I don't know what comments Derek has made in the Sunday school hours. You've been singing through that portion of the Psalter that is under the name of Asaph. But Asaph is, well, in many ways, uh, alongside of David, one of the chief writers of the Psalms. Certainly not as many as David, but yet not unrepresented in the Psalter. I found that in my youth, even before I was taking time to read the superscription of the Psalms and know who wrote what, that it was many of the Psalms that I subsequently learned of Asaph that found a lodging in my heart. Asaph was an honest believer. He put the struggles of the heart to paper Under the inspiration of the Spirit, he joined with us in the battles of our pilgrimage. And many of his psalms, though they begin with difficulty, I looked in vain through two or three of the commentaries or comments of Spurgeon in his uh, Treasury of David. I tried to say commenting and commentaries, and I knew that wasn't right. (laughs) Because he 
I believe it was he at least some years ago I saw use the phrase that Asaph often sang in the minor key. Well, that's okay with me. Brother Greg used to struggle with the minor key sometimes in our hymns, but if you can struggle through those things and come out in the major, there can be a lot of benefit in covering that territory where you are struggling. And Asaph certainly, and when you come to Psalm 73, is perhaps a prime example of those wrestlings of the heart. The psalm before us tonight is not really of that nature. It's not melancholy from the standpoint of the believer's struggle. It's not a testimony of the believer who admits to God that he's wrestling, that he needs help. No, it's a word from God Himself. And it's really a word, it's a prophecy of judgment, of the day of judgment. As you look through those opening phrases, and we'll come to those more fully in a moment, the parallels with what we find even in Thessalonians with regard to the second advent of Christ itself, the parallels to that very day are many indeed. And So yes, it's a sober psalm, but it's sober to the ungodly. It's sober to those who would forget God. It's sober to those that would worship God in vain that would with hypocrisy and with unchanged hearts go through motions, as it were. And so I want us to look at this psalm this evening, the beginning of these psalms of Asaph. We may say more of him along the way. But in verses 1-6, to in this portion of the psalm broken off by that poetical pause there, the Selah, we see here that there is a solemn scene. There's a day of judgment that God calls the earth, all the earth, not just Israel, to understand and to expect. The mighty God, even the Lord, hath spoken and called from the earth, or called the earth from the rising of the sun to the going down thereof. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God hath shined. Threefold usage of different titles of the Lord are put forth in this psalm as it opens. And it is a solemn scene of judgment. God doesn't just call Israel. He doesn't just call the professing church. He calls all the earth. And you see that poetical description uh, from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same. Everything in between. It's a universal call. The day in which God comes to judge, none will be absent. None will be excused. None will be allowed to not be in attendance. All will be there. And God solemnly calls, if you look in verse 4, heaven and earth to witness. As you call to the heavens from above and to the earth, that He may judge His people. If you look in verse 3, it says here, Our God shall come and shall not be silent. He speaks later in the psalm about his silence. Verse 21, These things hast thou done, and I kept silence. I want to pause just a little bit on that theme as we look at that opening section. I remember very early in my ministry, I preached a message on sleep. If I think long enough, I might be able to bring out the points of the message. Struggling a little bit there. 
it was one of those messages that went different directions. I think I got there. The sinner's shameful. No, the sinner's, anyway, some kind of slumber the sinner had. Um, And looked at the text, Awake thou that sleepest. No, that's not it. Whatever text it was that used the imagery of sleep for sinners being dead in trespasses and sins. 1 Corinthians, the saints' shameful slumber. I think I got that one right because Paul speaks about false doctrine among the Corinthians. And he said, uh, wake up. Some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. And what shame it is when the church lets go of cardinal truth. But the motivation behind that message was a phrase in the Psalms where it speaks of the Lord. And it said, then the Lord awakened as one out of sleep. And I thought, well, now that's something to wrestle with because... It says elsewhere, he that keepeth Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. How can we ascribe sleep to God and yet the scriptures do? But it's only apparent. And if you look through the context of that psalm, it was a season in which Israel in their sin and their rebellion had lived in such a way that God withdrew His presence from them. He didn't go forth with their armies anymore, as another psalm would say. But it wasn't that he was asleep. And I think the title I put for that point was the Savior's searching slumber. He just was searching his people by letting their enemies deal with them for a season. Well, I think in many ways that theme is the same here. God keeping silence. God doesn't leave Himself without witness. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows His handiwork. Day into day utters speech. Night into night shows knowledge. Romans 1 takes that up that the ungodly are without excuse because there is the voice of God, there is revelation that is speaking to them from every direction. But if you will, this speaking of God This gracious revealing of himself in some ways is not heard. And why it's not heard? Well, again, Romans 1 tells us the answer to that plainly. Men suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They hear it, as it were, and they say, no, no, I don't want to go there. Let's turn the volume down on that. And God sovereignly allows them to go their way. And you see the progression in Romans 1 where they stifle truth. They stifle that which speaks to them of their God. And God gives them up to their sin. And ultimately gives them over to a reprobate mind. That they might, in a sense, create and live in a world that's upside down. Where truth is fallen in the streets. Where right is wrong and wrong is right. And in a sense... It's in situations like that, whether it be in the main in days of great apostasy or in just the heart and life of an individual sinner that God apparently keeps silent. He allows them to snuff out His Word in their case, to not listen to it. But the day of which He speaks here is a day where he won't be silent. 
He won't allow them to ignore His Word. He won't allow them to suppress the truth any longer. He'll reveal Himself. And if you see the description here, our God shall come, verse 3, and shall not keep silence. A fire shall devour before Him. What are we reading in Thessalonians? He will come in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God. Here it is. It shall be very tempestuous round about Him. He shall call the heavens from above and to the earth that He may judge His people. Gather my saints together unto me, those that have made a covenant with me by sacrifice, and the heavens shall declare His righteousness. For God is judge Himself. Asaph calls us here, God calls us through the psalmist to remember the solemn scene of the day of judgment that is before us. When we become discouraged, as we will see in some of his psalms, well, there's an encouraging theme. It sobers us to be ready for that day, but being ready, being numbered among His people, and then perhaps being perplexed at some of the stuff that we see going on in the world, the remembrance of this day, the remembrance that God will not keep silence forever, encourages us to know that we're following truth. The world is suppressing truth, following lies. There comes a point As we see again in the prophetic word where men have so suppressed the truth, (coughs) they've not had the love of truth, that God sends them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. But Here I say is the solemn scene of the day of judgment. But beginning in verse 7, following the Selah, there's another portion of the psalm. And the Lord speaks here, Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I'll testify against thee. And if you read through the description here, there is a rebuke, if you will, of the professing church. You see these and the mention here of all the burnt offerings, the the bullocks, the goats that they have brought. And yet God has not been appeased by these things. Well, now we may step back and say, but the sacrifices, the offerings, the burnt offerings, the bullocks, the goats, aren't these the very things that we see back in the books of Moses that God did require of His people? Wasn't this a piece? Wasn't this a a, a tremendous central part of their approach unto Him and of their worship? Well, of course it was. But if you read through understandingly in this psalm and you look through the other scriptures in particular the prophets and their rebuke of the people, what happened to Israel? What happened to their pursuit of the ceremonies God had ordained and instituted? They just pursued them as outward ceremonies. They didn't see and understand behind them what they were pictures of. Circumcision. They weren't cut off from the world and joined into the people of God by new birth. And the prophets had to cry against them and say, Circumcise your heart. 
David the psalmist, when he was wrestling with sin, made that startling phrase. In a season in which sacrifice and burnt offering was a part of corporate worship, it was a part of the means of grace. He said sacrifice and offering he would not. No, it's a broken and contrite heart that God won't despise. And so the picture here is of a people that have gone through the motions. They have engaged in outward ceremony while treasuring unchanged hearts and unchanged lives and not understanding the very pictures that they were still using. They weren't understanding grace. Spurgeon said it this way, that which was intended for their instruction, they made into their confidence. The sacrificial system was to be instructive to show them and illustrate to them the reality of what would be done by the one Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The person and work of Jesus. Instead, they made these outward ceremonies and their performance and bringing of these offerings something they rested their confidence in. The blood of bulls and goats can't take away sins. We look at verse 10. Following there, there's some familiarity to these. For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle upon a thousand hills... I know all the fowls of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field are mine. Well, that's a text that we often use with regard to God's ability to supply. How many times have you heard it in a prayer meeting or prayed it yourself? There's a particular need that some brother has or you have yourself. Lord, meet the need. You're able. You own the cattle on a thousand hills. Well, as I say, that's true. But the context here isn't of God's ability to supply our needs. The context here is of our inability to atone for our own sins. God says, what what are you bringing me? What do you think you're doing? You bring this animal and, and that's supposed to have an impact upon me? I own all the animals. I created them. There's animals on the other side of the planet you don't even know are there. And they're mine. Cattle on a thousand hills. You see some of the heathen here. Think of the heathen. I have a new doctor. My doctor retired a few years ago, and I've seen this fellow just two times for physicals, and he's a believer. Enjoyed some good fellowship. Last time he had said he'd been reading in Isaiah and thinking about the the people that were fashioning their own idols, carving them out of wood. You know, They cut down a tree, part of it they split up for firewood. Oh, that's nice. Oh, I think I'll make a god out of this part. Well, what folly. What obvious folly. But so often, the ungodly and sometimes the professing church, they enter in to think somehow our God is like the imagined gods of the heathen. What are the heathen doing when they bring their sacrifice and their offerings? In some cases, they even entertain the thought they were feeding their God. 
God says, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. Now the obvious picture there is our God would never be hungry. (laughs) But if He were, are we a source of supply for our God? Is that where things really are? But yet that's the mindset here of the professing church. So overcome with a misunderstanding of the Gospel. They can turn things so upside down that they, in their worship, are meeting needs that God has. Well, we can look at it from an Old Testament context and smile and nod in agreement. But how often is it true in our New Testament context that we subtly and incrementally shift the message and the truth of the Gospel. We somehow abandon the understanding of total inability. Of our complete inability to contribute anything to our salvation. To our literally being dead in trespasses and sins. We think, well, no. We bring something to this equation. God, of course, has had to do His part. But we're going to engage. And we're going to bring that piece of it that we need to bring. And then how quickly and subtly the message, whether it's what's preached or what's understood in the heart, all begins to focus upon self. And then it doesn't take long once you've reached that point for the fleshly mind to say, well, having done my part and secured salvation and being eternally secure in that salvation, then well, I can just go on in my sins and whenever there's a problem, well, you know, I can walk the aisle again and make a rededication or some confession and we'll we'll all be sorted out again. And antinomianism, lawlessness, comes into a church that becomes hypocritical. And there are pieces of, can we say it, evangelical Christianity throughout our nation today for whom these warnings and these verses apply directly. And God would say, what are you doing? You're walking these aisles or you're, you're making these decisions. You're, you're professing these particular things. And you are understanding that I am appeased by these things. And you're not resting upon Christ. You're not coming to me with broken and changed hearts. What will the day of judgment be for such people? One phrased it, the mechanically pious. One of the reasons I wanted to preach just a little while back in our Lord's Day evenings on the fruit of the Spirit 
is these are the evidences of grace. These are the things you see in Psalm 51 where David confesses and admits what God isn't looking for and what God is looking for and what only God can supply in the lives of His people. And so this psalm of judgment has a beefy section, if you will, that's a word of warning and a word of rebuke for the professing church. Are you ready for such a day? God says to them, Then you begin in verse 16. And the Lord turns from these comments on the professing church. And He says, But unto the wicked God saith, What hast thou to do to declare my statutes that thou shouldst take my covenant in thy mouth? Here are people that, He says, verse 17, hate instruction. Cast my words behind thee. When you saw a thief, you gave consent to him. And you've been partaker with adulterers. You know, we read that catalog of sins in Romans 1. And we might even quote those verses and rest upon that and debate or in our profession, in our modern world where open sin and open perversion is paraded. But do you know the phrase at the end of that description in Romans 1? It says, who knowing the judgment of God, those really are already experiencing God's judgment, that heart that's given over to a reprobate mind. But he said, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. There's a consent of the heart and mind, even for those that may not practice all of the evils or all of the perversions. And I wonder just how often in our modern world, with all the opportunities and avenues of media, where those that would not say they condone such things, yet do consent with them, are partaker with thieves, are partaker with adulterers who give their mouths to evil and ultimately their tongue to frame deceit. If mere formalists are rebuked, how much more as we see in these verses those that openly transgress? It's here that you see the evolution and the deepening paths of sin. Verse 20, Thou sittest and speakest against thy brother. Thou slanderest thine own mother's son. The oriental world, that would have been pretty far down along the road to not stand up for a brother. These things, he says, verse 21, Thou hast done, and I kept silence. The long-suffering of our God, we've commented on that in our prayer meetings. As you see that, Sad story of surveying the lives of the kings, the condition of the nation. And God kept silence. There was long suffering in that, but God never ignorant of the sin, never unmindful of it, never changed with regard to his views of it. 
And then the second part of verse 21, I remember being taken with this a year or so ago and from a lot of different directions. Thou thoughtest that I was altogether such a one as thyself. I remember praying many times subsequent to being taken with that text, thanking God that He's not like us. Ponder that sometimes. You know, we have such high views of ourselves and you know, the world would be better if only I could be president of the world. You thought I was like you are. I thank God He's not like I am. No, instead, He's infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in all His perfections. Well, there is coming a day in which God will keep silence no longer. There will be a day, indeed, of judgment. Verse 22, Now consider this, ye that forget God, lest I tear you in pieces, and there be none to deliver. Whoso offereth praise glorifieth me, and to him that ordereth his conversation aright will I show the salvation of God. Our God is long-suffering. In one phrase it this way as you see this psalm of judgment and the conclusion calling the ungodly and the hypocritical all the world to look forward to that day coming. He said God's wrath is reluctantly unleashed. I might quarrel a little bit with the word reluctantly. Even God's wrath is going to be a part of His glory and of His praise. That He will not excuse sin. He won't make lightly of anything that has entered into His universe that shouldn't be there. But yet I think the thought underneath, the long-suffering of God, when you think of the days in which we live, our nation, the nations of the world, have deserved judgment for horrible sins for the whole of my lifetime. And yet God has withheld that day of the outpouring of wrath, whether it be one of those seasons of tangible judgment in the midst of history while history will go on until the final day, or if it be the final day that we're waiting for now. His wrath is withheld for a season. But once it is outpoured, once that day comes, it cannot be resisted. Don't be any to say, no, I don't think I'm going to go to that meeting. I think I'll just go do something else. No, instead, those that would have had that mind will be the ones calling for the rocks and the hills, for the mountains to, to fall upon them and hide them from His presence. And did you ever ponder that phrase in Revelation? To hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. I've never been a farmer, but I've heard from those that know that wrath is not something that's normally ascribed to sheep. There are a lot of negative parts of sheep. They're wayward and stubborn. They get lost and all of these such things. 
They'll stand out in the rain when there's a shelter three feet away from them. But wrath isn't something you normally see. But the Lamb of God, the one who has borne the fullness of that wrath for His people, one day will come in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These are sober words for any that are unbelieving. Whether they are the hypocritical church-going type or the worldly, don't care to go to church at all type, that day will come and I say it's a frightening prospect. But for the believer, and as we may see in some of the other psalms of this one that sings often in the minor key. It's not a minor key really in this psalm. These are words of encouragement that this broken, upside-down world won't go on forever. God will not keep silence forever. He'll vindicate His own name. He will honor His own law. He will magnify and gloriously display His own Son. And what will be true in that day? And I add the little footnote that believers, as we look for that day, Paul speaks of the judgment seat of Christ. He speaks of us as believers receiving of the things done in the body. The various nature of rewards, gain and loss even in that day. But yet even the least of the saints, the reward of life, eternal life, joyfully in the presence of God. What will be true in that day for us as well? We're caught up together in the clouds with Him as He appears. Public identification with this Jesus. Not to vindicate ourselves and get glory to ourselves, but to vindicate the truth we believed. and To be a testimony to the glory of our Christ. That's the thing God calls all the world to hear. All the world to expect. All the world to look forward to. Will it be a day of Foreboding, fearful judgment, or a day of glory. We've sung tonight, Tell me not of glories I shall see. This is the deepest, the dearest, being near to thee. Let's bow our heads together. Lord, tonight we come in a season in which you keep silence as this psalm describes it. But it speaks of a day in which you'll keep silent no longer. You speak now in ways that can only be perceived by faith and by hearts that you've opened. You'll speak in that day in such a way that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father.
And so we say tonight, Lord, with all our perplexities, with all our battles, Lord, with the struggles of unbelief, and yet as we were challenged this morning, the blessings of renewed faith, Lord, give those to us. Lord, we say, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. Prosper your word and take even at the close of this Sabbath, this psalm, and sober and encourage us as we have need. We pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.